Todd McClay is the Economic Development Spokesperson for the National Party. He's the MP for Rotorua, and he's been Minister of Trade, Revenue, State-Owned Enterprises, and was an Associate Minister of Health back in 2013. Todd McClay joins us on Taxpayer Talk. I'm Jordan Williams with Joe Ashcroft. Welcome to the show. Hey, Joe and Jordan. How are you? Todd, you've been making noises the last few days. We're in day 12 of lockdown calling for the lockdown rules to be changed by reducing the number of businesses to be locked down. Wouldn't that undermine the whole point of this exercise? Well, no, it wouldn't at all. And in fact, it goes back further than a couple of days. It was soon after lockdown first started. So we need to realise the government decided to put the country into lockdown and effectively that, they, that closed the economy down. I've had a really close look at their rules and I think in many cases they do seem arbitrary and what has concerned me the most, I suppose, in some cases they've said, you know, some outlets can open something that's similar or the same, uh, you know, uh, in another part of a town can't. And probably a little bit even more concerning than that is that in, in, in the cases as the government had to change or, you know, open the rules up a little bit more, they're saying some products can be sold and some can't. And so really the case that I've been making, Jordan, is very clear. Uh, that where uh, somebody can trade safely within the full uh, uh, health and safety protocols that the government have put in place, I think it makes sense for them to be allowed to do so because that's going to help protect the economy to the greatest degree possible and it's going to keep people in jobs. So the people that have been following the select committee process would have come to the conclusion that there's sort of three approaches really to this uh, this COVID nineteen there's the do nothing or the Swedish model that the that the Brits originally tried, uh, where you're largely relying on individuals to take steps for themselves. Uh, there's the mitigation method, which is the path that the UK um, are now on, and probably where Australia is too, which is this idea of smoothing the the, the curve. And then there's the third, which is suppression or elimination which is apparently what the path New Zealand is on. And on that basis, we want the absolute bare minimum being open. For, I mean, really, it's in actual fact only um, agriculture and food. Uh, wouldn't, or is your suggestion that we move from that suppression or elimination more to a mitigation approach? Well, well, it's a combination of those things. If we have a look at a couple of countries or governments of the world that um, have dealt with this extremely efficiently and effectively, Korea and Singapore are a couple of good examples. They've had very low numbers uh, and they have been able to keep their economy going. So the case that I'm making here is that, um, you know, the, the economic harm that's been done to the New Zealand economy is devastating. I'm not saying that the rules should be changed so people are put at risk, but already the government is weighing up, uh, you know, the health concerns against, uh, you know, access to certain types of things. They've continued to change that. And in the case that um, somebody can trade remotely and contactly with little, if any, uh, uh, risk at all, I think they should be able to do so. You know, here we are in almost the middle of a four-week lockdown. This lockdown may go further. The government needs to continue to focus on, you know, the health outcome, not questioning that at all, but at the same time where a trade or economy, economic activity can commence safely, 
then it should be able to. But isn't this all about trade-offs? I mean, ultimately, isn't the, if we are on this suppression or elimination path, and although obviously the Singapore's, the Taiwan's, South Korea's are the, are the world model in terms of the mitigation, if we're on the suppression path, isn't any business open an additional risk in not achieving that suppression or even elimination of this disease? No, I don't think that's the case at all. So if you look at those who uh, trade, um, you know, e-commerce as an example, uh, you're right where there would be a very large warehouse that would end up being full of hundreds of people, uh, then uh, there would uh, be more risk as they move around, I suppose. But actually, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about parts of the economy that can be opened up uh, or revived and will allow people to start trading again and keep their jobs and to do so safely. So you are right that I guess the government are having to go through a process where they are evaluating you know, risk versus reward, but we have seen them change a number of times where they have resoundingly said that they would not do so, and then they have. We've seen it uh, to a degree with community newspapers. They said that they wouldn't allow them to print, and then a week or so later uh, said some could under certain circumstances. You know, if they were able to do that over a period of time, my argument is they should have been able to at the beginning. They've obviously decided that the risk is very low. Sadly, some of those community newspapers will never open again because they weren't able to trade for all that period of time. So to a degree, it's I'm saying that the government needs to be agile in their decision-making when it comes to the parts of the economy that should be and can be opened up, and they need to be less arbitrary. For instance, a dairy can open, but a butcher can't, and we see agriculture can, you know, can farmers can farm, uh, but the forestry industry is not able to go out and do logging, and ultimately, whilst decisions have been made, it's not the case in agriculture that it's only about food production for us over the next four weeks. So suppose we go down that pathway where businesses who are confident they can trade safely are allowed to do so. Are you confident we'd have the sheer administrative capacity to monitor those? You know, there have been quite a lot of businesses, the warehouse, variety of other sectors that say, we are confident we can open and meet these health standards. You could have thousands and thousands of businesses across the country trading, but quite a lot of those might not actually meet acceptable health and safety standards. Are you confident we could effectively monitor the sectors of those economy while we encourage them to meet that standard? Well, the government must already be confident because they've said every single dairy in the country can open. And they've also said if there's a mad butcher beside it or a greengrocer beside it, they could give the meat or, or the, you know, the veggies and the fruit to that dairy and they could sell them and trade. And so the government obviously is, uh, must have done a whole lot of work around this. But I, I put it quite simply, whilst there will always be people who um, will flout a rule, no matter what it is and for whatever reason, the vast majority of New Zealanders are being extremely respectful and they are sacrificing. They're sacrificing things they don't even realise they are now for the good of the country and to protect lives. It doesn't. The argument that I'm making here is that I do believe that the government can put trust in New Zealanders under certain circumstances to take this seriously. And you've got to remember that actually what the government has said to all uh, everyone that's come back from overseas, including largely now, you can go and self-isolate but on the other hand, they don't uh, trust somebody who trades from home and that will leave something out that the uh, courier could pick up and deliver somewhere else. But they don't trust them to do that. So I believe that actually 
you know, that is the government has moved forward and decided how best to mitigate risk. They've had to change their position a number of times and they need to continue to do so so that we can, uh, you know, keep people in jobs. You used the example of forestry earlier, Todd. If you were going to, say, open up forestry on this basis that agriculture um, operators are operating, wouldn't that just create new madnesses or inconsistencies? I mean, where do you, wherever you draw the line, it's arbitrary. For example, you open forestry within the next in line is the paper and pulp mills. You know, the the government is saying we want everyone at home accept what is absolutely necessary. If you open the door so it's just a little bit more ajar, don't you just open it more and more and more and then we're back at level three? Well, um, no, I don't believe that is the case. And so you look at pulp and paper, well, there's only one uh, um, mill in New Zealand that produces pulp and paper largely uh, now or two, I suppose. And, uh, you know, most of what they produce is exported. And so that will be a bit to do with their export market. But but I come back to forestry as an example. So um, the trucks are driving around. They are moving things around the country. They must be so, so food and produce move around, firstly. Secondly, the ports are operating. So in as far as risk is concerned, these things are already there, they are happening. So the question is for the forestry sector, can they conduct themselves in a way that meets the health and safety requirements that have been assessed? And if you look at logging as an example now, much of that is nowhere near as intensive with the number of people on the ground where they used to be. But we also need to think and balance out um, you know, the health aspect of the government's consideration with the significant harm that's been done to the economy and find that middle ground. So I'm not talking about a trade-off in one direction or another, but ultimately uh, what we are seeing is devastating harm being done to the economy. The government will end up borrowing up to $100 billion over a period of time. You've got uh, you know, the Auckland Chamber of Commerce who surveyed their members and come back and said that they think that 30% of them will never open their doors again. And what I'm asking the government to do is be agile as they look at what sectors and industries may be able to recommence um, safely so that the economic harm is not as significant as it would be otherwise. And there are great examples of some countries around the world who have done this very, very well. There are examples of countries who have done it very badly. The government needs to be agile because ultimately when we talk about you know the economy taking over, we're talking about business still being there uh, as the government brings us out of lockdown, and we're talking about people that will have their jobs and will keep their livelihood. The, the government being agile sounds a little bit of a of a slogan, and you keep going back to industries determining, picking, and choosing whether that's uh, whether that particular industry is safe. Would you prefer it so more industries are deemed safe based on the assumption that what is currently open, for example, supermarkets, for example, ports, dairy farms, um, are another example. Uh, that anyone that can reach their standards should be open and and you think that that doesn't create an additional risk? Or would you do it on a business by business and set this is what David Seymour's uh, is proposing, that rather than essential businesses, it should be based on a measure of safety rather than what, they, um, what, what they're producing? Is it, which one of the two are you leaning towards? Look, look I think it's, it's, it's actually both. And I think you can make both arguments at the same time because we're in an environment where the government has uh, chosen sectors that they say are essential. And within that, certain businesses that are essential and within those businesses, certain products. And I think I would make the case that um, 
you know, in many in many instances, for for most New Zealanders, they prefer to go to a local shop to get their meat or their fruit and veg, and perhaps wait in the line for hours in the supermarket, and, and then engaging with or being close to hundreds and sometimes thousands of you know thousands of people over a day. It doesn't make sense. No, no, just, just, just let me finish that one. So it doesn't make sense, and I use the word arbitrary as well, that actually the shop that the government has said can open uh, and have contact with trade, that the worker in that shop that's already there, and the, the shop has already been given permission, and it can, you know, and they are trading in a way that they ensure their workers are safe, can take an item from a shelf to courier to somebody, but the item right beside it, it can't. Okay. So that just doesn't make any sense at all. Secondly, as we move forward, the longer that the lockdown goes, or as we transition from a you know a level four to a level three, you know, but as long as the lockdown goes, there will be a necessity for people who have access to more things. At the beginning of the lockdown, you couldn't buy a cell phone. I hear the government has just said, actually, no, you can buy a cell phone now if you need to. But, you know, we know that they said that fruit and veg and um, and uh, butcher shops couldn't open. Prime Minister said today that they've always been able to trade online. That's not correct, but she said they now can. So obviously the government is reassessing all the time, and I'm asking them to continue to do so. And and saying that um, that uh, you know they need to be agile is not a slogan. Actually, uh, you know they've come in with some very very strict rules and criteria to start with. They've continued to define they have to change those. The longer we're in lockdown, the more they're going to need to do that, both so that people have access to the things that they need. But secondly, which is where you come to about what David Seymour has said, and I agree with him, about taking a, a risk-based and health and safety approach so that more of the economy can open up. Yeah, that's true. In fact, I noticed over the weekend that, that the rules were just changed without any announcement that you can now order up to three bottles of spirits to be delivered um, by courier rather than just beer and wine. Yeah, and, and, if, and if you go back a week earlier, you couldn't do that, but all of a sudden you could quietly and the question I would have is why. If it's, you know, if it's safe now, why wasn't it safe a week ago? Because they didn't announce it. They haven't been around every single shop that might or might not be doing this. Ultimately, uh, you know, there's never going to be a complete uh, system that, uh, you know, that, that works uh, as well as some would want. But I come back to what the government has said about everybody that's come back into the country over the last period of time, including since lockdown. They largely have allowed them to go uh, and um, self-isolate. It's not an argument about that in itself, but if the government was willing to do that and now they're about to change and say, no, actually we need it to be more stringent, in the other direction they can also make assessments that will allow more of the economy to open safely and we will take some of the harm away that's been done to households uh, at the moment. So obviously once the dust settles, the economy is going to be substantially weaker than it was a month or two months ago, regardless of the nature of the lockdown. You know, 10 million Americans look to have lost their jobs in the last two weeks. So what's the kind of initial response as you see it in the next three to six months once we get out of lockdown and return to some sense of normalcy uh, economically? So I don't think we're returning to normalcy, uh, any sense of normality in the next three to six months. I think this is significant for the New Zealand economy. And the press release this week, I said it's devastating. Uh, the impact of this is going to be with you know a generation of New Zealanders, both from the point of view of unemployment. And we heard the um, you know, we heard the finance minister say a week ago 
it could be 30% of you know, employment could go to 30%. I don't think it will be that high, but it's going to be at a level that few New Zealanders who are alive today can remember. Uh, you know, it's going to be a uh, you know, GDP could uh, fall by 30%. So, some economists are saying more. It's not about the next three or six months. This is about the, the coming years and the coming decades. And the point that I'm making in, in saying to the government, be agile, you know, uh, take a, a more uh, risk-based approach that, that balances things out rather than only looking at the, the health, the, uh, the, the health uh, aspect of this, is that some of the decisions that may well be made today will mean that it takes longer for the economy uh, to recover and the effects of this will be there for much longer. I'll give you the example of Bauer, the German company, didn't leave necessarily uh, just because of uh, you know not being able to print, but it was one more reason for them to decide to go. And the listener and the Women's Weekly that have been here forever don't exist anymore. Now, the government's right. Somebody may well pick that up and buy it. But to every single journalist that worked for that group, they now have lost their job and have a more uncertain uh, um, uh, future than they would have otherwise if the decision had been made at the very beginning that weekly uh, um, publications could continue to publish and be delivered under very strict health and safety, COVID health and safety concerns. So I'm not saying that the reason that that, those, that publisher pulled out of New Zealand is this alone, but actually if they had been able to continue to publish as other small um, newspapers uh, could have in New Zealand, then perhaps they still would have been here. And last weekend we heard the Prime Minister say that actually small newspapers now can start printing. That decision might have come a week too late uh, for the people, the journalists in New Zealand worked about. So I think most New Zealanders would agree with you this is going to lead to a generational economic challenge. What do you think that means in terms of generational economic policy? Because, I mean, debt, debt is going to skyrocket, GDP is going to collapse, unemployment is going to climb. Where do you see that going in terms of economic policy? Because I think most people say it can't just be more of the same. There needs to be significant changes to whether that's tax, whether that's treatment of capital, whether that's trade agreements. Where, where do you see that going in the next 10 to 15 years, generationally? Well, look, I, I think... I think it's all of those things. So the government uh, is going to have to uh, look at a stimulus package. The stimulus package will have to be focused both on um, business itself, but also the wider economy. Uh, um, you know, it's going to have to look at uh, the larger project, infrastructure projects that uh, it undertakes itself. At a time when uh, debt is going up so very, very quickly, billions of dollars uh, every week, just to sort of keep people there and to help them survive. I think we're about to see a fundamental change in approach to these sorts of things, you know, when it comes to economic consideration and modelling. Having said that, we've got to be very careful that we as a country and the current government doesn't make decisions based upon things they've always wanted to do. Because every time they make a decision, it doesn't mean that they can't spend that money twice. Of course they can't. They're going to be borrowing that money, and it is future generations that are going to have to pay this back. Future generations, uh, you know, this debt could be with us for a very long period of time, decades anyway. The other thing we're going to see, uh, I think, that we need to be very, very mindful of is younger people. You know, I've got um, children that are at university now. Um, a few months ago, I uh, was quite sure they'd have a bright future. There would be jobs available for them. They could travel freely. They could go to parts of the world. Well, I'm nowhere near as certain of that now. Uh, you know, I believe that they have a future in New Zealand. But actually, the types of careers they might have wanted, will they be as readily available 
when will they be there for them and they will face great competition for work if you know hundreds of thousands of New Zealanders uh, lose their jobs which we're told uh, they're likely to and employment goes into double figures. I'm just scared to tease that idea out there I think I think you're right that this is going to put some limits on our ability to continue um, I suppose our external facing economic relationship with the world whether that's um, tourism, travel, exports, how do you think that poses a challenge for our economy in terms of transitioning? I'm just thinking about Queenstown, for example. They are going to face a monumental challenge. That that town is just going to be economically destroyed. What what are we going to have to do to, I suppose, find opportunities for those people domestically? Or even closer to home. I mean, Todd, your own electorate that, 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 that we're sitting in. Yeah, so in Rotorua is the same. You know, if you look at the Rotorua economy, there are three aspects to it. There's forestry, there's farming, and uh, there's uh, tourism. And tourism has stopped, stopped completely. And there will be an opportunity for domestic tourism to to uh, to support. Uh, actually, domestic tourism is a very large part of the Rotorua tourist uh, you know, economy, uh, probably less so for Queenstown. Forestry is very, very important. But there's a step behind that because it's not just those that are involved in tourism or forestry, it's the engineering workshops and the people that, you know, that become apprentices there and go out and have careers and all sorts of things. It's the guy down the road who's formed a business and paid, you know, raised his children and paid a mortgage based on the photocopies he puts in all those businesses. So it's going to be very, very widespread. But take tourism uh, for a moment. Um, you know, there's one of the things that the government will face uh, real choices in. Uh, you know, we're hearing signals that says the border will close for an extended period of time, there will be significant restriction. And I understand that as we sit here with the middle lockdown. But, uh, you know, we're already hearing from other parts of the world that they are looking at different ways to allow people to travel and to come uh, there. And so, whatever we think may be the case, uh, here we are today, and at the end of week two of lockdown, uh, New Zealand uh, tourism and, and New Zealanders are extremely innovative and so I am um, hopeful that we can find solutions. But to come directly to your point, if I come back to Queenstown, you know, there are significant, significant challenges going to be there to their economy uh, and ultimately it's going to take a lot of hard work and a lot of support and a lot of investment to, uh, you know, to, to make sure that, uh, that uh, those who are active in Queenstown economy are able to remain there. Todd, um, being a member of parliament isn't generally known for its job security, but with hundreds of thousands, um, perhaps even millions of New Zealanders taking uh, haircuts to their pay at the moment, and the Prime Minister saying today that they're not ruling out ministers um, taking a reduction in pay, um, being a taxpayer group would be um, be remiss not to ask, is there any discussion within the National Party about MPs ta- taking a temporary pay cut if um, most other New Zealanders are too? Yeah, look, it's, it's fair to say over the last sort of 10, 11 days, all of the conversations we're having collectively about how we help our constituents and we make sure that people are getting access to the help that they need. Uh, I mean, my staff and I um, you know, kept our offices open, although they are remote from other telephone and so on, and put in hundreds of calls a day to see me to make sure they're getting the support. And the ladies that work for me do an amazing job of finding people that can't get their medicine and getting delivered to them. So the work continues. But I think as we sort of, as the country has settled into, um, you know, to lockdown, uh, you know, here we are almost in the middle of uh, week two, that that's a conversation that's fair to have. So uh, I hear you said that the Prime Minister said she's not ruling it out, but I'm pretty sure that that's a conversation that all the Parliament will 
we'll have uh, quite soon. Very good. Todd McClay is the Shadow Minister of Economic Development. Thanks for joining Taxpayer Talk. Mm-hmm.